This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are here with longtime Senator Joe Lieberman, and we're recording now during the holiday season, which is a busy time for all Jewish people. So thank you very much, Mr. Lieberman, for joining us. How are you today? I'm good, Rabbi. You know, if I told you the whole story, I'd tell you I have a little bug, but why should I tell you the whole story? Baruch Hashem, I'm alive. And we had wonderful Rosh Hashanah with family, so we're looking forward to an important Yom Kippur. Wonderful. Well, we do encourage honesty on this program, so you can okay. tell us you're under the weather, and uh, we'll take you warts and all. That's the truth. There we go. So, Senator, let's start with a little bit of history, just some of the basics. Tell us about where you grew up, what your early life experiences were like, in particular, maybe some of your early Jewish experiences, and what brought you into your early adulthood and, of course, eventually to your illustrious career. Okay, I'll try to do that in less than uh, four hours. So I was born in Stamford, Connecticut during the Second World War. So it gives you a sense of my generation. I was born into a family that was Orthodox. We're certainly diving into the Orthodox show. I was probably considered to be one of the more religiously observant families in Stanford at the time. Uh, that is at the time. <laughs> and we spent the first eight years of my life, my mother and father and I, my sister, and then a second sister was born. But I mentioned the first in the home of my grandmother, my mother's mother. Very important upbringing. She was, in some sense, my link to the old country. She was very pious. She was very warm, great sense of humor, just a very important force of my life. We used to joke, I joked anyway, that in my family, my mother and father were the trial court. So if you had a problem, you went before the court. However, if they ruled against you, you could appeal it to my grandmother, my baba. He's <laughs> the circuit and court. <laughs> Yeah. And at the appellate court, the circuit court, the grandchildren never lost a case. <laughs> it's a long time ago, but I can see that house on Hawthorne Street in Stanford, Connecticut. I can almost smell the aromas of my grandmother's cooking and my mother's cooking. And it was, it was a very special place to grow up. And uh, Jewish observance was part of it in a very warm, positive way. Your, your grandmother was an immigrant? My grandmother was an immigrant, but all, my, both of my parents were born here, but all four of my grandparents were immigrants. My grandmother and my grandfather, her husband, who, who I didn't know because he died in an accident very early. In fact, I'm named for him. His right. name was Joseph Yosef. They came from what was then Romania, part of the Austrian Empire, a little town called Stanovitz, which was near a big city called Chernovitz. <laughs> and my father's family, his father was Polish from around uh, Krakow, and his mother was from Belarus, and they met in New York and got married. So four immigrant grandparents, both parents born in America. So when I was eight, my mom and dad bought our own house. We moved to it. My grandmother still came and spent at least half a week, and then ultimately the whole week when she sold her house with us. But it was a great upbringing. I mean, in some sense, I say to people, you're a young rabbi, so there was a great TV show called Happy Days. I remember. With uh, Rich, Richie Cunningham, yeah. Anyway, I, I feel like my upbringing was like that. It was a very multi-ethnic, somewhat multiracial, totally devoid of bias. I mean, we would tease each other about our ethnicity, but everybody really got on extremely well together. And that's the climate in which I grew up. I mean, that, let me pause because I could go on about my uh, childhood. <laughs> and that time. would be wonderful. What, what would you say? Was there maybe a one or two or several formative experiences early on for you? 
It's an interesting question whether there are actual big events. Let's say this. The rabbi of our shul was a man named Joseph H. Ehrenkrantz, of blessed memory. He was very much a modern Orthodox rabbi, a student of Rav Salvechik, very involved in the community. And not only did he make religious observance interesting and understandable, but he spoke to us about our obligation to the broader community. So I can't think of a specific event. Oh, I can I can think after my early childhood. I was already at college. It was 19... 19- 63, I happened to be working as a summer intern for my senator, so I'd already begun to develop interest in public service, obviously. Dr. Martin Luther King's March on Washington was the, in August of 1963, so I was right there in Washington, and of course I went in March. And who do I run into? My rabbi was there with a delegation from my hometown of Stanford, multi-religious, multi-racial. I mean, it was just the kind of ethic that he set. It was also consistent with the values that I got from my parents. They were very from, but they were very open-minded. They were very accepting of people who were different. And they did put a premium on my sisters and me to uh, not only to do mitzvot and behave in a way that brought respect to the Jewish people and to our family, but also to be involved in the life of the community. Though neither of my parents were in politics, they were very active in the Jewish community. My dad particularly followed public events very closely. I mean, he was from that generation that if he didn't read the New York Times on a given day, it would be as if he failed to daven chakras. <laughs> so that was a house. Now, if you ask me about specific events, I would say, interestingly, in terms of my life and my career, that the election of President Kennedy in 1960 was a seminal event in my life. Why? Why? Because he was a very appealing candidate. I mean, he was a young man. He was in his early 40s. He brought together what to me seemed like a right combination of strong foreign policy, a progressive domestic policy. There was also a way, which I, I never really articulated to anybody, but thinking back at it now, I know it was in my mind. I identified with him because he was a Roman Catholic. He was of a minority religion in America, although there were a lot more More Catholics than Jews, right? <laughs> and in Connecticut, it happened to be that the Catholics were the, if not the majority, at least the plurality of the populations. And, you know, he faced some really terrible bigotry, although he overcame it and during the campaign. When he won, it did, I think, say to me and probably a lot of other people that I might say a door opened up for all of us. I wasn't thinking of running for president, believe me. But I was beginning to think of a political career. And so Kennedy's election was a catalytic event, a formative event. I mean, I'll jump forward and tell you another formative event. When I went to college, I went to Yale, I started to be less religiously observant. When I look back at it, it almost seems like what I was doing was so predictable and trite. You know, to me, it seemed like I was, well, this was my decision. I was making choices, but really it's what a lot of college students do. And I look back at it and I kind of laugh at myself. So I stopped being Shomer Shabbos. And there are certain things that I couldn't stop. It's fascinating to me. Throughout that entire period, I continued to put on tefillin every morning. Sometime I dive in awfully quickly, but there was something about that connection with the tefillin that kept me there. Now, why do I mention this? Well, it's part of the progression. And I I think it's important. I stayed in New Haven and went to Yale Law School. I was married I, in 1967. Uh, my first child was going to be born. And a few months before that, my grandmother, who I've mentioned, 
passed away. So there were now two dramatic life cycle events that were occurring in my life. One, I was about to become a father, so a new generation was beginning. Second, my link to the, my own personal history, my grandmother, the, my closest link, had ended. And for me, I began to think very seriously about religious observance. And to put it in the most simplistic sense, and sometimes you make big decisions that are really quite simple, although they're profound, which is, am I going to continue to be eh, so-so observant, but not so observant? I've lost my grandmother. I have a child coming, turned out to be a son. So I began to see that metaphor that I bet my rabbi gave me about Judaism as a, a chain of links. and everything. But it's, it's a little bit different, really. Am I going to let the history stop with my grandmother and our family, or am I going to carry it on? And I began to come back to religious observance, to being a Shomer Shabbos, et cetera, et cetera. So those were, I mean, that comes to mind, those are somewhat unusual usual formative events, but both in terms of my public life and my private life, they were very formative. Well, it seems like there's really a quite a fusion between the two in that the values with which you were suffused as a young person and which your rabbi really both preached and practiced, is it fair to say that those private values ultimately precipitated your public engagement and your desire to get involved in politics and uh, the answer is yes. I mean, there's no question. A lot of times people in all the years since then will say to me, why did you get into politics? And I'd say, well, of course, I've thought about that myself. And the answers are that my parents set an example for community service. Also in Kennedy's election was one. I, I began to read quite actively in high school and college biographies and histories, just to basically reaching the conclusion that leaders can have a positive or negative effect on history. But then I said, the final is that the Torah education I received, the Torah values, the, some of the basic ideas that, you know, we're not here by accident. Hashem created the heaven and the earth and the people here. In that sense, as our Declaration of Independence says, we're all equal. And a whole set of policies come from that. But also that we have an obligation, whatever you call it, to do Kiddush Hashem, to sanctify God's name, to do Tikkun Olam, to try to better or even perfect the world of Malkut Shaddai under the sovereignty of God. Those are motivating values. And also I would say, and I think sometimes this is overlooked, that Judaism is a religion of law. You know, we talk a lot about the rule of law in different countries. It makes a country civilized or not. But the whole Jewish narrative of history, you know, begins with the Brit between God and Abraham, the covenant. That in itself is a kind of legal agreement. But really the climatic moment is we have God's fulfillment that he remembered the covenant when the Jewish people were enslaved in Egypt and liberated them from slavery, but not just to sort of live in Egypt or to wander in the desert, although they did for 40 years. It was to go to get their essentially national mission statement, which was the Ten Commandments and the Torah on Mount Sinai. So there's a basic presumption in Judaism that put it in its sharpest way, freedom is not enough. By our birth, we have a right to be free, but we need law. We need law to protect us uh, from each other, essentially, and to bring out in each of us our better nature. Now, why do I say this? Because I think that set of values that I learned from my religious education had an effect on the way I saw my life in public office as a lawmaker or as a law enforcer during the time I was Attorney General of Connecticut. So, you know, I've been really uh, lucky. I've been very fortunate. I'd even use the term blessed, although Jews don't use it enough. 
<laughs> I've been blessed to have the opportunities that I've had to uh, be of service in that way. Now, so you were a young man, obviously uh, precocious and ambitious equally. You were at Yale University, Yale right. Law School. I guess you liked New Haven. And you ended up becoming a, a young attorney. And then just very briefly, how did you move from that early station to the real meteoric success that you had throughout the next part of your career? Well, yeah, thanks. So, you know, I look back on it. And uh, one thing I'd say is that there were various times in which I took risks. You have to take risks. And I could have failed and my life would have taken different turns. But thank God, for the most part, everything worked out, although I did lose elections at various times. It's just the nature of the way it is. I always say to people who've come to me over the years, particularly after I'd been in uh, politics for a while and asked for advice about political careers. And I would always say from my experience, I would say you have to work hard. You have to go out and get yourself known and meet people. And then at some point, you have to decide, probably, unless you're very unusual, very lucky. You have to take a risk. You have to decide, I think I can do a better job at that office than the person there now. And I think I'm able to explain that to people. And then I always say to people, you're never going to be certain you're going to win. But I will just say my own value set, don't do it if you don't think you have any chance to win. <laughs> in other words, uh, you have to have a feeling that it's possible you could win. So I stayed in New Haven, uh, much to my surprise. I always thought I'd go back to Stanford, but I got a, a law offer. It was a little better in New Haven than Stanford. And I think I had become close to Yale, and I, it was a little hard to leave it at that point. But anyway, stayed in New Haven, got active in the community, in the Jewish community, in the political community, etc. I was only 27 years old when I declared for a state senator. The incumbent state senator was running for the U.S. Senate. Most everybody thought he was not going to win that and he would come back and run for the state senate. He was known as a tough guy. Later, he and I became friends. His name was Ed Marcus. Nobody else wanted to say that they would be ready to run against him if he lost <laughs> and came back. But I, I you know, well, who was I? Was a 27 year old. I was I was too foolish and too, and I had nothing to lose. You know, I was on. So I stayed in. He did lose the U.S. Senate primary, came back, and we ran against each other. And I won by very little, but I won. So that started my career. I was 10 years in the state Senate, the last six as majority leader. I was very close to a woman named Ella Grasso, who became the first woman governor in her own right of an American state. I mean, in her own right, meaning that she didn't succeed her husband or something like that. Uh, unfortunately, she died of cancer in 19. 80. And I always thought that she'd be a candidate for national office if she had lived longer. But I um, was there for 10 years, the last six as Senate Majority Leader during the six years Ella Grasso was governor. And then my congressman, uh, Bob Jimo, uh, surprised everybody in 1980, said he wasn't going to run for office again. He was retiring. I never yearned to be a congressman. I was dreaming of being governor and then senator. <laughs> But, you know, I had this feeling an opportunity comes along. Who knows when another opportunity will come along? These are lessons you can learn in politics that are not always good for you. So I ran and uh, and I lost. It was quite an experience. Why did I lose? First off, I, I, I did run into the Reagan landslide, but I also didn't run a good campaign. And I learned a lot about that in that campaign. The other thing I learned is about what can be the, the therapeutic value of a good defeat every now and then. So I was walking around after the election and people would come up and express their remorse, their sadness. And after a while, I said, you know, they're treating me as if I died. <laughs> I'm, alive. I'm alive. I'm, let's see, by that time I was 
37, and uh, I just lost an election. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to go on. And I did. And it happened that two years later, there was uh, an opportunity to run for uh, attorney general. Again, I took a chance. I declared when the incumbent was still in there, it wasn't clear he was going to run. He ultimately didn't run. And I, there was a, a nomination fight at a convention, and I won, and, and I won the election. I had six wonderful years as attorney general. I loved it, really. It was a great I, I job. You, I, I interviewed Nat Lewin, and he said that you uh, perhaps stood together on some legislation to promote Jewish values. Yeah, that was great. Nat, Nat is uh, just a wonderful person, a great lawyer, and a, he's just done extraordinary things through the law. So I, I guess I knew Nat not very well, called me out of the blue. He called me on behalf of I always forget what it stands for, but it was an Orthodox Jewish legal rights organization and said that, you know, they reviewed cases and they interestingly had found a case that was coming to the Supreme Court brought by the estate of a man who had worked for a department store chain here in Connecticut. That man was Donald Thornton. It's a long time ago, but I remember it. <laughs> And see, we, we had had blue laws in Connecticut, oh. <laughs> not concerning Shabbos, but Sunday. Sunday. You couldn't run a business on a Sunday. We repealed those laws. They were thought to be antiquated. But in the law, we said that a business has to accommodate the religious uh, uh, beliefs of its employees. And basically, uh, Mr. Thornton and I and Nat felt that Thornton's employer, uh, which was a chain called Caldor, which strangely enough was uh, founded and owned by a family that were members of my show in Stanford, <laughs> uh, the, the circle of life. So uh, Nat said that the case was actually coming to the U.S. Supreme Court, and uh, he was re arguing on behalf of the estate of Donald Thornton, and he'd give me half the time of his time, a half hour before the court, 15 minutes for me to argue on behalf of the state, which had an interest in protecting the statute. And we had a great time preparing. I thought we were absolutely right. Unfortunately, the court ruled eight to one against us. Right. You know, sometimes it's timing. And I, I think that the court had just issued a couple of decisions that made people wonder whether they were really uh, blurring the church state line. And I think they took this as a case in which they were going to reassure people, no, we were not going to let the law protect religious observance too much. So, But it was a great experience, and it did ultimately lead to other cases that upheld that to the point that Nat and I hope to argue. So you were attorney general, and then when did a Senate seat possibility? So, I mean, I'm, I have so many stories around this, I'll try to be selective. So in my mind, I dreamed of being governor, and then if everything worked out, I'd be a senator. Part of that was, I think, because of the path followed by Senator Abraham Ribikoff, who had been a governor and a senator from Connecticut, a Jewish man. I had worked for him. That summer, I was in Washington during Martin Luther King's march on Washington, and uh, he became a mentor to me. He was really a remarkable person. So I was elected attorney general in 1982, re-elected in 1986. In 1988, there was a Senate seat up, and the Democratic Party didn't have a candidate, really, because the incumbent Republican senator, his name was Lowell Weicker, was quite popular, it appeared, and also had a fair amount of Democratic support. So the party people began to come to me and say, look, 1988, you'll be in the middle of your attorney general term. You have nothing to lose. And why don't you run? Were you the sacrificial and, lamb or? Uh... 
Well, that, that's why I said I don't want to be the sacrificial lamb. And then my pollster did some polling, a fellow named Stan Greenberg, and said, you know, Weicker is not as strong as people think he is. I, he said, I've got to be honest, in the latest poll we've done, you're 25 points behind him. When I, when I think back to that, I wonder, how did they convince me to run? But Stan Greenberg's counsel was, unless you really follow up, if you get to run against him for U.S. Senator, even if you lose, you will raise your visibility so much that you will be a much stronger candidate for governor in 1990 when the governor is not expected to run again. Anyway, it was not an easy decision. I'll tell you a cute little story. It was Labor Day of 1987. And Greenberg came over to our house, talked to my wife and me and a few campaign leaders for me. And uh, he had a particular scenario about how we would run against the incumbent Republican senator. And at one point, just out of the blue, he said to Hadassah, my wife, if you really want to help this campaign, Hadassah, you'll become pregnant and have a child. So I said, Stan! Now, <laughs> now, now, the strangest thing was, we knew that Hadassah was pregnant. <laughs> yeah, but we, it was very early in the pregnancy. We we're not telling anybody. So we laughed and, oh yeah, right away. And then about a month and a half later, I called Greenberg and I said, Stan, there are some people who listen to their pollsters and some people who ignore them. I'm telling you how much I listen to you. Hadassah is pregnant. No! So our little Hani, now 29, was born in March of the campaign year. It was quite a thing. Uh, anyway, I finally decided to run. It was very, very tough campaign. I was way behind for most of it. At the end, I pulled kind of close. And then I won by less than 1% of the vote out of about a, a million 300,000 votes. Guys, I just tell you this cute story. Everybody always says, you know, victory has a thousand parents and defeat is an orphan. The night opened in the, my hotel suite in Hartford with a few people in my the suite, not too many. It was pretty obvious to everybody I was going to lose. As the returns started to come in and a few of the networks declared I was the winner about 9 p.m., we, we were not prepared to do that. We thought it was going to be very close. The suite began to fill up. When we finally decided after 11 p.m. that I could go down and declare victory, I really felt I had to talk to Hadassah for a minute. There was nowhere to go. So I pulled her into the restroom, the hotel suite, <laughs> closed the door, and she looked at me and said, sweetheart, I thought you were just doing this to raise your visibility so you could run for governor in two years. And so I said, you know, Baruch Hashem, who knows what hand is guiding us. We're on our way to Washington. And Be careful what you wish for, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And Hadassah has been a, a, just a really extraordinary wife in every way, and really Eshet Chayel, including her support of my political activities, which are not easy. So uh, we arrived in Washington as a new U.S. Senator in uh, January of 1989. There's so much I want to ask you about and with respect to a, a long political career from then. I guess yeah. in our brief time, just what were some of the signature achievements that you feel most proud of in, during that time? And then importantly, how did your very visible Jewish faith factor in, of course, later on, it would become really uh, supercharged, and, and we'll get to that. But just in this period in the Senate, what were some of those experiences, challenges, triumphs, both politically yeah. and religiously? So I, if you ask me first, the things I'm proudest of, I would say, uh, first in context, that everything that I'm really most proud of, I did with members of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. In other words, they were all bipartisan. 
I worked very actively in the amendments to the Clean Air Act under President Bush 41 with the Democratic majority in the Senate. And I think we really improved those acts in a way that have, that have enabled more people to live longer lives because they weren't getting sick from air pollution. I was also quite active in a bipartisan group, Senators McCain, Dole, Biden, and me particularly, four of us, pushing the president, first Bush and then Clinton, to get more involved in the Balkans after the uh, collapse of the uh, Berlin Wall, the end of the Soviet Union, to stop the genocide that was being carried out against Muslims particularly in Bosnia, and ultimately uh, we were successful. I'm just jumping ahead. It happened that I was chairman of the, or ranking member of the committee of the Senate, later became the Homeland Security Committee, then called Governmental Affairs, on 9-11. And our committee brought forth the legislation that created the Department of Homeland Security. We created a commission to investigate 9-11, bipartisan commission of citizens. It made a very important report. And then we led the way in adopting the report, which was the largest reform of our intelligence and particularly intelligence and defense agencies and foreign policy since uh, the beginning of the Cold War, which was appropriate because we were starting a new phase in our history, which was the war with radical Islamic terrorism. So those are some of the things that I feel best about. I always worked on human rights, going back to what I said originally about, you know, everybody comes we come from the same God. And so I've been active in civil rights and women's rights. And again, always working with Republicans. When I look back, you know, some of my best friends still now are people like John McCain and Susan Collins, who are both Republicans, but obviously that didn't matter. We just worked together. We became friends. And now you asked me the second question about my uh, Judaism. You know, you if you work at it, obviously kashrut can be dealt with. Most of your davening. When I was St. Kaddish, incidentally, for my mother in 2005, we had a great system for having a minion in my office for mincha. My secretary, you know, I knocked out the message every day, who's coming? Who Can you come? And then what we got to. But the, the challenges really were around voting on the Yom Tovim or on a Shabbat. Interesting. Yeah, and really more the Yom Tovim than otherwise. Uh, there were probably over my 24 years in the Senate, I, I never really sat down to count. I would guess 40, 50 times when the Senate voted on Shabbat. And uh, you know, I talked to my rabbis, and they all said, if you know you're going to have to be there Friday night and Saturday, stay at the, on the Capitol Hill. If uh, you think you're only going to be there Friday evening, you have the opportunity to come home, walk home. Or if you know it's going to be Saturday morning, walk in on Saturday. If for some reason you don't have that advance notice and you have to, take a ride from somebody who's not Jewish. And the last of all, which I never had to do, was uh, it's really an emergency. Get in a car and drive yourself. So most of the time, I could see the boats coming, and I would either walk home late at night from the Capitol or walk in Shabbat morning. And ultimately, even though I lived a pretty good ways away, and my legs were in better shape than they are now, although I have now I have two metal knees, so I'm sure I could do it again. <laughs> but, Just don't uh, go through the metal detectors. No, right. So it all worked out. And as I think has been the case with my observance generally in my political life, it has not put people off. It has actually brought people closer to me or given people a kind of respect that I was consistent about it. Really, going back to when I was a state senator, so there were hardly ever votes in the state center on Shabbat, but there were testimonial dinners for people who had helped me in my last campaign. There were picnics for the local Democratic organizations who helped me in my last campaign. And so 
At first, people were either puzzled or sometimes angry that I couldn't come. But when I explained to them that it was my Sabbath and I couldn't be involved in politics, I would do everything I could to carry out my public responsibilities. They accepted it and respected it. And really, I'd like to say to young people today, Jewish or not Jewish, that I believe we're living at a time in the history of this country where you will not have to choose between your religious observance and your personal career goals. And that's a great thing to be able to say. And I know it wasn't always so. It wasn't so in my parents' generation and certainly not in my grandparents. As a senator, I know that over the years, your own role evolved and eventually, if I'm correct, you became an independent. In many ways, you, you may have sort of stood alone at times apart from your own party. Did you ever analogize that to your Jewish identity where I think of Abraham as a man standing apart? Politically, do you ever feel like I need to stand up for certain values, even if that means I'm a man standing apart? And did you take inspiration from Judaism in that regard? Well, that's a really interesting question. I will say that in all my years, and I'm not a child anymore. Nobody <laughs> asked me that question or framed it that way. So I would say two things. One is I don't think I ever in my mind made the exact connection that you've suggested that, you know, Avram Avino stood up when against the mood of the time for something he believed was right. But I think that was inside me. In other words, I think those were the heroic role models, people who, in a way, put values, nation ahead of self-interest or narrow interests. And I think it's part of why Jews disproportionately end up being involved in, for instance, social justice movements. Still true. Justice Ginsburg, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, has been talking publicly about this lately. It's fascinating to hear her. She didn't come from a particularly religious family. She's not particularly religious herself, but she feels that the Jewishness in her expressed itself in a sensitivity to the rights of individuals, particularly those who are being deprived of their rights and a willingness to take on the fight, which she did, particularly before she went to the Supreme Court, on behalf of women. You know, it always is a fascinating question about the effect. Maybe somebody's already done this book, but how you link the Jewish ethics and just the way you've said, stand up, do what's right, you know, work for justice, have mercy, (laughs) that express themselves so often in Jewish leaders who are not religious. So you can't directly say, ah, he or she got that from their rabbi. I was lucky enough to get it from my rabbi. A lot of others didn't, but somehow, I don't know whether it's in the DNA or what, but it's something to be proud of. And it is part of our Torah legacy, really. As a rabbi, I would suggest that it's in the spiritual DNA of the Jewish soul. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good way to put it. Take me quickly to the vice presidential running, and, and what was that like? Obviously, that took things to a whole other level of yeah. visibility. What was that about? And then, as well, you've written a book about Shabbat, about observing Shabbat, right. the gift of Shabbat, right. I believe it's called. How did that tie in? Was that precipitated by your vice presidential run, and where did that fit into the whole picture? So the opportunity to run for a vice president was way beyond anything I ever dreamed about. I'm a dreamer, you know, I know my name is Yosef, although I'm not sure I always interpret dreams as well as he does. But this was way beyond my dreams. I will be forever grateful to Al Gore, who uh, asked me to do this. It's a very personal choice by the uh, probable presidential nominee. He took a risk, but he did it with confidence that the American people would judge me and our ticket based on our qualifications, not on our religion. And we did, after all, get 544,000 more votes. Than the other <laughs> I I got, and I, 
Yeah, I don't want to say that to relitigate the election. So I would say that overall, it was, except for that recount, it was an extraordinary experience. And uh, the American people were just wonderful in greeting my wife, Hadassah, and me. And there was great interest in my religious observance. And again, it was not a barrier. I think it was a positive, if anything. Of course, Hadassah and I felt strongly that we had a real obligation, not only to do the best we could for Al Gore and the ticket, but to represent the Jewish people and our own religion as best we could. And overall, I feel pretty good about how we did. Well, the book was something that was in me for a long time. I will tell you that my fourth term was ending in the Senate in 2012. I had pretty much decided that I wasn't going to run again. I wasn't going to announce it at the beginning of 2011. But I hadn't definitely decided. But I had enough money in my campaign account. I didn't have to be running around the country raising money. So I stopped. And I thought, I've got a time opening in my schedule. And this is what I want to do. I love Shabbat. I feel Shabbat is a gift from God. And people would say to me sometimes, how can you be a U.S. senator and take one day off every week? And of course, my answer is not original, but how could I be a U.S. senator and not take a day off every week? It helps me to do everything else, to work harder during the other six days and to have perspective, clearer perspective on what I'm doing the other six days. So I wrote the book and I'll tell you, I love the responses I get to the book. It's mostly been read by Jewish people, but it's been read by a lot of non-Jews who also also said that they appreciated it and appreciated the idea of a day of rest. I think in the end that writing that book on Shabbat will be one of the most significant things I've accomplished in my life. And I have been privileged to accomplish a lot of things legislatively, politically, etc. So that's how it happened. And you know, strangely enough, not that any of my books is a bestseller, but I've written seven books. And the one that sold the most was the Shabbat book. There you go. This is the seventh book, by the way. The seventh book, right. In closing, tell our listeners what you're doing now and what your aspirations are for the future, and especially what do you think some of the, the great challenges are facing the Jewish people now, and, and where are we going? That's hard to do. Briefly, when I announced that I wasn't running again for re-election, somebody sent me a quote from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which I paraphrase, which is that the modern idea of retirement is based on a misconception that there are productive and unproductive periods of life every day or alive, you can be productive. And I would add, in fact, although as you age, there are some things you can't do as well as you did when you were younger. There are other things that you're better at just because you have experience. So I joined a law firm in New York, Hesowitz Benson, half-time. I'm teaching a course every year and lecturing at Yeshiva University. Uh, I'm involved in a host of causes, an organization called No Labels, which works to try to bring our government back to more bipartisanship, nonpartisanship. A couple of organizations, one called United Against Nuclear Iran, with obvious purpose stated in its name, another one, the Counter Extremism Project, and on a couple of corporate boards. But it's been actually a wonderful period of life. We moved to Riverdale, New York, where two of our four children live with five of our grandchildren, so we get to see them quite a lot. So the challenges for the Jewish people, I mean, I'm an optimist. I always say that we're living in probably the greatest period of Jewish history today. The Beit Mikdash is not in Jerusalem, but in every other way, the reestablishment of the state, the dynamism of the state, the davening that goes on at the Kotel every day, the religious activity within Israel, and the strength of the American Jewish community. I mean, this country has been more open, more accepting of Jews than any other country outside of Israel. 
Israel in our entire history. But there are challenges that come with that. We know all about assimilation and all the rest of it. You know, I'm an optimist. I think that the Jewish people are an eternal people, but it doesn't get as good as it should be unless we're working to observe the mitzvot and trying, beginning with our own families, to pass on the, the torch. To do what I did at that moment I had when my grandmother died and my son was about to be born. Because ultimately it's up to us. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.